Good morning, everyone. My name is Gabe. I get to serve here as one of the pastors, and I, I want to do two things. First of all, uh, we handed out Bible reading pledge cards, and uh, we began turning those in as a part of our spiritual worship of God. And I want to encourage you, continue, if you haven't, uh, think about what of God's word does he want me to consume this next year? And we as a church want to help you uh, keep that commitment, uh, make a, a, a good decision uh, for how that's going to help you grow in 2023. And so if you haven't turned in that card, I want to encourage you, think about it, pray about it. And as we pass our offering buckets, that is one of the things that we hope uh, you would slip in there is your commitment card to what you want to read in God's word. We're not telling you how much or how little to read. We're just encouraging you in that because I know that is good for us as a church to do. I, I want to bring up a verse about stewardship uh, that, that shapes my worldview. And as I think about money in particular, Deuteronomy 8, 18, God reminds the Israelites about their covenant with him and uh, through Moses says this, Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. I reject the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which takes that verse and says that, that God wants every one of you to be the most comfortable, the most healthy, and the most wealthy. And that if you are not those things, then it, it means you're unfaithful. I reject that. <laughs> But what that verse does tell us is this, is that when you and I achieve something, in particular when we succeed at money, that we need to recognize, praise, give God the credit for it because he is the one who gives us that ability to be able to provide for our families, to be able to save. And our giving is a great way of showing, God, you are the one. I'm remembering that you are the one that is sovereign over all of this and that you care for me. It is one of the ways that we represent that. For the Israelites, it was living in the covenant in the land of Israel. And for us, it is, it is being generous that, it, that in Christ that we are blessed in order to be that blessing and our offering is a part of that. We don't want anybody in here to feel compelled to give, but we do want to see that our giving is an integral part of our faith. So let me pray for that. God, I pray that you would help us to glorify you, praise you, that you are the one who gives so many things to us. As I think about the different talents, the different minds, uh, the different physical abilities in this church, and Lord, how, how we get to praise you as we use those gifts to build your kingdom in this community in the South Denver metro area. And God, I pray that our offering would be a part of that, of giving in recognition of, Lord, what you've given us the ability to do, what you've been behind us and for us and the ways that you've provided for us. God, I pray that you would use this offering to advance your purposes. God, I pray that this church would always be a church where it's not about us getting our way, but about us submitting to you and saying, God, what do you desire? Uh, God, I pray that you'd use this offering 
Lord, that we would be able to, to live out those ends and those purposes. God, I pray, I pray, Lord, for the ministry that happens because of the generosity of your people. And we want to thank you for your people, Lord, and we want to praise you for the ways you provide for us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. While the offering's going around, if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Before we do our scripture reading, we have a memory verse. It's up on the screen, I think. If you want to say it with me. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 And now we're back in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, 
and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Thank you, Emily. Kids, you did great listening to that, and I'm going to let you head back to your class. Hey, make sure you tell your teachers thank you today. So they, uh, they worship with us. Our teachers worship with us as they go back there. We're so thankful for them. Um, thanks for opening your Bible to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. So we're going to walk through these, these first 25 verses. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit and, and get at some significance. I'm going to ask some questions and not answer those questions this morning. So I always love doing that. Really good. Uh, but our sermon series is, is this, is that the gospel moves out. And today we are moving beyond Jerusalem. If you go back to that key verse, Acts 1-8, Jesus declared, Jesus declared, you will be my witnesses. Right? There's a command in there, but Jesus is declaring what's going to happen. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And today we're going to see that move uh, to cross cultural and theological boundaries into Samaria. Into Samaria. I'm going to explain that. But what has happened so far? What is, we have been in Advent. We have been preaching through what our, bio, uh, what our church believes ab about the Bible, that it is the Word of God, breathed out by God, carries His authority, that it is sufficient for us um, that follow Jesus, it's sufficient to give us life, to lead us in this life, to carry us to the end. And so as we come back to Acts from Advent in that series, I want to recap what's happened so far and just nuts and bolts. So, so all the way back to Jesus' ascension, that Jesus, Jesus left, but he left with some, some words, short words powerful words that were going to be filled up. And some people have described Acts as Jesus' words being fulfilled. They're not the Acts of the Apostles. And today you're going to see that the Apostles are trying to be faithful, but they're trying to be faithful to Jesus' words. 
And we're going to see how his words are, are filled greatly. So as Jesus ascends, uh, the, the Christians pray together, numbered at 70, so we know how big this movement is. Luke records that. And the Spirit falls at Pentecost on those who were praying. And they begin to speak the gospel in this picture of what's to come in all different native languages that they didn't know before of the people that were represented in Jerusalem. And so these people are hearing the Christian gospel about Jesus in Jerusalem in their own tongue. It's amazing. All this happens in Jerusalem. Many believe, many are baptized, and many are added to the number of the church. They join with the community of the church, which they weren't a part of of that congregation. They weren't a part of that, and all of a sudden they are. And then we begin to learn the story of this growing church that's becoming thousands. That this growing church in Jerusalem, I might add, that they had problems and they had resolutions. They had villains and they had heroes. That spiritual revival is happening and it is happening in and around Jerusalem. And so in a huge way, the first part of Jesus' word is being fulfilled. You're going to be my witness. You're going to represent me in Jerusalem. And that's phenomenal. And even surrounding villages in Judea, that's great. But there's still an anticipation of what Jesus has clearly shared is yet to be fulfilled. A longing to see it fulfilled. And expecting, but it hasn't happened yet. And as that hasn't happened yet, that the gospel is, is fairly contained to Jerusalem, not because, it's not because, and we shouldn't read into this, that the apostles weren't faithful or that the early church wasn't faithful. It's just that this had not happened yet. And we're going to look at today if, uh, if they will be faithful as Jesus fulfills this. But as we look at Jerusalem in this big revival, in this, this um this non-ignorable group of people, thousands now in Jerusalem, that are following Jesus, not everyone is happy by that. Not everyone, including Saul and, and many other Jewish religious leaders that saw the spiritual awakening as a threat to their way of doing things. And that's where we get our text today. We hear about this great persecution in verses 1 through 3. And we also hear that there is a, a scattering of the church, that the church is scattered. Except for the apostles. Isn't that really interesting? The apostles don't scatter. But in particular, one deacon scatters to Samaria. And as the church scatters, what also happens is that the proclamation of the gospel moves out as well. So as these people that were a part of the spiritual awakening in Jerusalem are headed to these different regions and areas, they're going sowing the gospel seeds in lots of different places. And we hear one particular account of Philip who preaches in Samaria. And here's what, here's what we should note is that not only does he proclaim the word boldly, but he shows the word boldly with miracles. People, people are being healed and... and um, Demons are being cast out, people that were unclean spiritually. And there's great rejoicing in the city as people are hearing the word. And I just, 
I want to encourage you with this picture here. Philip goes to Samaria, and, and I'm kind of wondering what he's thinking, a new place. He's not, he's not from there. And yet there's great joy as he shares the gospel. And, and I don't know about you, if you think that as you share the gospel that there will be great joy, I want you to know that there's great joy to be had in our broken world that desperately needs restoration to God through Jesus and only Jesus. That there's great joy to be had. And we don't know where and when and who, but there is great joy. And we get to see that in Samaria. Now, this is really important. Who are the Samaritans? Who are the Samaritans? They live in this region of Samaria. It's just north of Judea. It's just north of Jerusalem. But who are these people, the Samaritans? Jesus told a parable about the good Samaritan. Are they good people? What should we know? And this is who they are, their identity. They're a mixture of the, the ten northern tribes of Israel. The ten northern tribes of Israel and some other nations. And, and yes, and yes, they were talked about in that mixture of peoples pejoratively. They were looked down on by the people that lived in Judea in Jerusalem. The Samaritans. They were in fact hated. And to understand why they were hated and why they're separated out from the people of Judea and Jerusalem, we have to understand their history. What's their history? And there's one text you can go back to uh, where God speaks some judgment on the people of Samaria, the northern kingdom. 2 Kings 17, as they're being kicked into exile. And it recounts some of their history, and it's important for us to understand the relationships it goes back to the, their first king, right when the kingdom splits between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And all of a sudden you have two kingdoms representing the people of Israel. And Rehoboam was the king of the south, and he ruled in Jerusalem. And what was that poor, important religious building in Jerusalem? It was the temple. And, and so the new king, Jeroboam, that took these ten tribes and split from Rehoboam in the region of Samaria, what we're going to call the northern kingdom, that was a problem politically because all the faithful Israelites would travel at least once a year to go worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And can you imagine, can you imagine, right, if there was a king whose throne, a, a, a rival king whose throne was also in Jerusalem, that you might think, ooh, I don't want people's loyalty to leave me as they go to worship in the temple. And so Jeroboam came up with a political move to preserve his kingdom, and that was to set up competing temples in his own kingdom. He set up, in particular, golden calves for the northern tribe to worship instead of at the temple. And so you've got this political move that he makes. He doesn't want people, his people, going to a neighboring kingdom, the southern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, to worship because he's afraid they won't be loyal to him. But it has a lot of theological implications that they're not going to go worship Yahweh at the temple in Jerusalem like they were supposed to. Instead, they're going to these pagan shrines that Jeroboam has set up. 
So right there, immediately, the Samaritans become a stench for two reasons. One, because they represent a separate kingdom. And number two, because they, they represent idolatry, worshiping these golden calves. Not only that, but in 2 Kings 17, we also hear that the northern kingdom fell to the king of Assyria. And what he did was he took the best of those Samaritans, the best of those ten tribes of the, the northern kingdom, and then he took all these pagan nations that did not worship the one true God, and he sent them to live in the northern part of Israel. There was a problem right there because those different nations worshipped all different kinds of gods. So much, in fact, and this is so interesting to me, that the, the people, the mixture of people very early on, the first generation, as they're trying to resettle in the northern land under the king of Assyria's authority, they experience all these different kinds of curses. And these curses are all traced back to the curses that if you disobey God's covenant, if you disobey the one true God, then these curses are going to happen. The king of the pagan king of Assyria understands this. The pagan king of Assyria sends a priest of Israel to go to these ten tribes in the mixture of nations and to teach them the law of Yahweh. Because he knows it's the only way they'll be able to survive living in the land. And so they do. They do. Everybody learns from this one priest about what the law of the Lord is, and they start obeying. Right? They start obeying these ten tribes but they also worshiped the other gods. Does that make sense? They began to follow the law of God, except not exclusively. They followed the law of God, but they also worshiped these other pagan gods. And so you had, you had Jewish law, but then you also had this pagan idolatry very present. And so you had shrines, and you also had child sacrifice. 2 Kings 17 tells us. And that made this people a stench. When I think about the history of the Samaritans, I think about this. There's a good question to ask. It's a, it's a great question of, of anybody to ask, who am I serving? <laughs> Do I serve God? And that was a question that the Israelites were asked throughout their history. It's a question that I can ask you today. Who are you serving and do you serve God? But as I think about the Samaritans, there's a follow-up question that's very important. Do you serve God and do you serve anyone else? Because we can do that. And, and there's a word called syncretism, a spiritual confusion that I can follow, I can devote myself to God, and I can also devote myself to someone or something that is contradictory to what God wants me to do, right? Right? that contradicts him. And that was the syncretism of the Samaritans. They took the Jewish law, and then through Jeroboam, it, it began to be polluted. But then they also took all these practices of neighboring nations, and they mixed those together. In fact, you can look up in John 4, the woman at the well, 
where Jesus has an interaction with a Samaritan woman. And you can see the theological and the cultural issues come to the top right away in Jesus' first words with this woman. But the question for us is this. Do we have competing and contradictory loyalties within us? That we, that we can say, yes, I serve God, but maybe there's something else that contradicts that in our life. That's the story of the Samaritans. And so the people in Jerusalem did not like the Samaritans. The people that lived in Judea did not like the Samaritans. They avoided each other. They didn't treat each other well. And yet here is Philip. Philip isn't one of the apostles. He's one of the deacons. He's, he's one of those seven Excuse me. He's one of the magnificent seven that we talked about that was chosen to come into church leadership. And they, the people hear and rejoice at Philip's preaching. And yet there is someone here who has captured people's attention, and it is Simon. Simon. The people had given attention and some devotion to Simon the magician. He did, he did tricks, he did miracles, things that the people couldn't explain, and so they believed, they followed him, entertained, captivated by him, we could say. And so this dynamic happens that Simon believes Philip, and that Simon, who has amazed people, is now amazed by Philip. At what Philip can do. At what Philip says. And the text tells us that Simon believes and that Simon was even baptized. And then remember the apostles, and I think this is why Luke gives us that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem until now. And Peter and John hear about what's going on in Samaria through Philip. They hear about the spiritual awakening of these Samaritans. And so Peter and John come. The, here, here's the key, and, and uh, here's the question I'm going to ask. You know, we hear, we hear lots of different things, and not everything is consistent. We don't hear the same things. Like, for instance, Philip preaches, and there's miracles. But we're also going to hear about other times when the apostles are preaching, and there aren't any miracles. There's nothing fantastical that happens. And, and we don't know why, why at this time and, and not at this time, but we can only venture to say that it's probably because of the credibility of the message. Here, Philip is coming from Jerusalem to people that believe something totally different than the theology of Jerusalem and that these miracles accompany to give credibility to this good news about Jesus to a very different people, the Samaritans. But secondly, we hear this, that the... Don't understand this, and so let's keep thinking about it. I'm not going to give conclusive answers, but, but that the people are baptized in Jesus' name, and I take that to mean that they are baptized with water in Jesus' name, and yet they do not receive the Spirit. And here's what I mean by that, that they are believing, and yet there's not evidence of the Spirit dwelling in them. There's not evidence of that spiritual awakening and that is so strange and so odd. It's unusual. And I want to safeguard one thing right, right here, right now. That as the gospel moves out to a different people in a different region, and I'm going to add in a different, in an unusual way, that maybe this isn't normative. 
So don't be thinking at the beginning that as we digest this, that what's happening here is what we should expect to see today. Because there are some people that use this text as a proof text of this is how salvation happens with every Christian in the 21st century. And it must happen this way. That you profess being a Christian and then you have a second baptism of the Spirit, a spiritual baptism after that first water baptism. And I'm saying, no, I don't think that that is typical here. But as the gospel moves out and the gospel moves into a different people, we do need to pay attention to that this is different. This is not how things have gone before. And so Peter and John arrive, and there's the the problem or the question of that the Spirit has not fallen and is not dwelling in the Samaritans like the Spirit has fallen and dwelt in the new Christians that live in Jerusalem and the surrounding villages. And so Peter and John come as a follow-up to to Philip's ministry to lay hands on and to pray for the new Christians who are not Jewish but are actually Samaritans now. And as they lay hands on these Christians, the Spirit descends in ways that people can recognize they didn't have the Spirit before and they do have the Spirit now. It was very clear to the people that were there that they observed that something had changed and it was the Spirit dwelling in them. It was the Spirit empowering them. Now Simon, in verses 18 and 19, sees this. And Simon, in this, sees an opportunity. Because he he learned that if he knew something the people didn't, if he had a power that the people didn't, that he could captivate them with it. And so what he does is he approaches the apostles and says, listen, (laughs) I will give you money if you will give me the authority to do what you just did, to put your hands on someone and that the Spirit would fall on them. Simon sees an opportunity. We know what's happening because we have the context of Jesus, right? You're going to be my witness. We expect that Jesus' kingdom is going to expand far outside of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And what is a huge expansion that's going to happen in the middle? It's that this this movement of the Spirit and this movement of the gospel and disciples of Jesus is going to move from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria, The apostles see that these are Jesus' words being fulfilled. This is not Simon's opportunity. This is Jesus' advancement of his kingdom. And Simon is trying to seize on this for his own glory, for his own benefit. And so Peter rebukes Simon in verses 20 to 23. And he rebukes him harshly, right? In fact, maybe it's how some of you uh, heard our memory verse today. All scriptures, God breathing, and it's useful for smacking people across the head and hitting them upside the face, and right? That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 said. No, I, we mean correcting and rebuking when we're in error. When I am in error, I need rebuke and correction. Gabe, don't walk that way. And it is the loving thing for us to be clear about, no, that way ends in destruction. And this is the way of life. That that is a loving thing to do for our brothers and sisters. But there's the question of what is going on with Simon? 
And I think Romans 8, 9 would help us out. Paul says that you are not of the flesh, but of the spirit, if the spirit takes up residence in you. And yet what we see is that Simon has a very fleshly view of the spirit. That the spirit is a force or a magic or a power to be obtained and to be used however we would like. That's pretty much, a, I mean, that's, a, I think, a great definition of magic. And, and Simon has a magical view of the Spirit. He does not believe that the Spirit is a person. A person to be obeyed. That the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is a person to be worshipped. And that the Holy Spirit is God, God dwelling with us. And that Simon misses this, and so he needs the correction. What we see in verse 24 is that likely Simon is, is humbled by these words of Peter, that they have effect on him. And then we hear that Peter and John return to Jerusalem. They came, they helped with this this spiritual problem that the Spirit didn't fall on the Samaritan Christians like the Spirit did on the people in Jerusalem as they believed. And yet Peter and John come and, and probably something to do with their authority as apostles and God wanting them to be a part and how important that is for church history, that the credibility and the authority that rode on the apostles, that Luke does such a good job defending their credibility, gives credibility to what? That the gospel is genuinely moving out. This is not fake. This is not fraud. This is not Philip leading some, some underhanded revivalism. And here's what I mean by that, that no one's hearts are being changed but that he can work people up into a frenzy and make them think that the Spirit is in this house. No, this is genuine. The gospel has truly moved. Jesus' words are being fulfilled in their day. The witness, the gospel has moved out to Samaria. Now, I've got, I've got three conclusions that come from this, three applications that I, I want to dwell on. And then next week you get ready for even more because this Ethiopian eunuch makes, in his story, makes some of the same case and even more. So some of the same points, but even more and different. But here are three for today. What do we see right here about the apostles, about the church, about the Christians in Acts? That they made room for people in the body of Christ who were excluded from the temple. It wasn't just hundreds of years before when Jeroboam said, we're no longer going to go to Jerusalem and worship in the temple. That they stopped going to the temple, but that these Samaritans were excluded by the religious leaders from worshiping in the temple. You're a different people. You're not a part of us. You don't believe what we believe. They were excluded. And in some ways, I'm going to say it rightly. You can't, you can't worship at these shrines in Samaria and then come to Jerusalem and expect to worship in the temple. And yet right here, as they believe Jesus, as they decide to follow Jesus, 
what, what do the apostles do? They make room. These Samaritans, they have room in the church. Why? Because the gospel is big enough. Right? The Samaritans didn't belong in Jerusalem, and according to the Old Testament law, they did not for the things that they did, for what they represented, for how they lived and what they practiced. And yet, as they received the gospel of Jesus, there is room for these Samaritans in the church. And here's the question for us today. Is the gospel still big enough? Is there room for all kinds of people to believe the same gospel that you and I believe? And the answer is yes, nothing has changed. That, that people co who come from the modern day Samaria, they, they might not have the same background as you. That there is room in God's plan to save all kinds of people to himself. In this movement from Jerusalem to Judea, because I didn't live in it, sometimes when I read this passage, it doesn't feel like a huge movement. And yet Jesus said it was going to happen, and it is a great fulfillment. That the Samaritans, who when Philip showed up, could have said so many things. Oh, you're coming from Jerusalem? Yeah, we don't believe Jerusalem. See you later. <laughs> you're Jewish? Well, 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 we're Samaritans. We don't have business together. We don't worship together. See you later. So many things that they could have said. And that Philip could have said. And yet, and yet right here, there was a God-sized vision for Samaritans to be included in the church early, early on. And here's what I suggest. I suggest that we pray God's visionary word to be fulfilled. That there might be people in 2023 that we might say, that's a, them becoming a Christian, that's a bridge too far. Them joining in the community here, I'm not sure I'd want to invite them. I don't know how that would be received. I mean, think about that. I use that as an excuse all the time to why not to have a gospel conversation with someone, not to invite them to church, not to ask how I could pray for them. Well, how would that be received? That, that might go poorly. Imagine Philip showing up in Samaria. And him imagining how that could have been received. I want you to think about people, maybe people that could be a stench to you. That you say, I really don't want any business with them. They are hard for me to love. Maybe it's because of their political views. You know that there are political views mixed in here with Samaria? So many between Samaria and Judea. So many. How about this? Uh, you know, what if it's, what if it's this, that, that they raise their kids so differently than you? And maybe it's because someone's coming from a different culture than you. Maybe it's because they're younger than you. Maybe it's because they're older than you. My only question is this, is God's gospel big enough to save that person? Is God's gospel big enough to include that person? Someone who maybe you sincerely or wholly disagree, do you believe that the gospel is big enough to make room for them in the church?
And I want to clarify something. That also means that there will be a lot of changes, just like there are changes in us in how we practice our faith, that we're being refined by each other, that we are mostly refined by God's word and its sufficiency to tell us how to practice our faith. They made room for people in the body of Christ who were excluded from the temple. Here's what I want us to think about is that we might be more like the religious leaders at the temple. That we've got good reasons for why we wouldn't invite someone to our community group. That we've got good reasons for why someone couldn't come to our church. But instead, we believe that God can be gracious and he can transform any one that he chooses, the people that we want him to, and sometimes the people we don't want him to. The Samaritans were the people that a lot of, a lot of the people in Jerusalem would say, I, I just want to forget them. The gospel is big enough. You can't count them out. Number two, they received, understood, planned, organized, and carried out the mission. Well, wow, that's a lot, but I'm getting to this one idea. <laughs> This one idea. Jesus said this was going to happen. And the, the apostles didn't go out the month after Pentecost and start preaching in Samaria. And yet they anticipated, they expected. And what I think is very clear is that they made room in their hearts. Because I, I feel, <laughs> I feel for, for some church leaders where God does something like this, like bringing Samaritans into your church. And wow, when they let their church know about it, more people are upset than excited about it. But right here, the apostles kept in mind in the early church, they received Jesus' words. Yeah, it's beginning in Jerusalem, but it's moving out. And it's moving out to, in particular, Samaria. Those people you don't normally like, you haven't got along with for over a thousand years Talk about grudges. But they received that mission. We're going to be the witness to the Samaritans. So that when the door opened, when the opportunity came, that they planned and they organized and they structured things in order to be faithful to God's word. Okay, so I want to bring up this, this issue. <laughs> and it's going to be really fuzzy. So I'm just going to try to clarify at the start. There are, there are some kinds of people whose personalities lean towards structure. And there are some people's personalities that lean towards spontaneity. And it is wonderful, and it is great, and it is good. But in the Christian faith, sometimes, depending on our personality, sometimes, depending on the churches we've been in, in our Christian experience, we will lean one direction or the other. Can you guess which one I lead to? Because I'm guessing which one you lean to. Sometimes if we're a free spirit and spontaneous, we believe that in order to share the gospel, in order to do a number of, of different things, for that to be authentic, it has to happen spontaneously. And so maybe, maybe you've felt like nails on chalkboard as we talk about committing to read your Bible in 2023. And you're just like, oh, it just needs to happen. It just needs to be something I desire to do every morning. And then it's authentic and it feels good and it's right. And 
And Gabe, you're preaching heresy with these Bible reading plans and commitments. And what I want us to see is that there is room for both. And it's a suggestion. This is, I'm not coming down hard on this. A suggestion to you is to think about which one do I fall on? And perhaps making applications within and then also outside of our personality or what our spirit or structure might be is a good thing for our Christian life. Because I hear some people say, God's got to open the door for me to ever do this. And I'm asking the question, well, when are you planning to share the gospel? Because I think both are great. And sometimes we can get in good structured practices that are going to bring these, these great conversations. I'll just share one in particular that you can help me with. That there are good times to plan to go share the gospel. You know, for me, I, I love playing basketball. So sharing the gospel on the basketball court is where I've seen a lot of conversations. But I will tell you, they are a both end. I go there to play basketball, and I'm praying for opportunities to share the gospel once, twice, three times with people I just met, with, with people that I've known now for a year. And what's awesome is it happens. And it's rather spontaneous. There, I don't have a set conversation that I have. But just the spirit-empowered ability to bring it up or for someone to say something that just... As a Christian, it's like, wow, this is an awesome opportunity to have a spiritual conversation. And if I did not structure or have the intentionality in my mind, I'm just going to go play basketball. I'd probably be over here saying, wow, God's never given me the opportunity to share the gospel with someone within pickup basketball at the gym. Of both and. Right here, they received, understood, planned, organized, and carried out the mission. And I want to give a defense right here that this story is saying that we can have structures that are not legalistic, but good and helpful for us to carry out the plan of God, to be faithful in what he's called us to do. I remember one, uh, one, one woman who, who told me, and, and she She's teaching us how to share the gospel with uh, the three circles. And she's doing it while she's pushing this baby carrier, keeping her kid asleep. It's amazing. I loved it. I loved it. Um, a room full of mainly male pastors. And, uh, and there she is sharing with us about how she boldly shares the gospel. And for her, it was this. Here was the struggle. She's always looking for opportunities to share the gospel. But here was her structure. She said, but I do set aside two hours every week and I go to the park with my kids because I'm a mom. And I go to the same park. I go at the same lunchtime because I can build relationships and look for opportunity to sow seeds of the gospel in people's lives. It's not a, I go there and every time I get an opportunity to share the gospel, but do you see her structure? She's got structure in her schedule. And I think some people would say, it can't be authentic spiritually if it's structured, scheduled, or planned. And I'm saying, no, no, we got to make room. And maybe there's a structure in your schedule, your time, 
Maybe there's another kind of structure. Maybe it's been the card for you to think about and plan about committing to read God's word that God's spirit can just as authentically work in his people as they look at their calendar and say, oh, it's time to go play basketball or it's time to go to the park. That God's spirit can move through those. I want to bring up one in particular. You don't have to do this, but it's a suggestion. As we hear about God opening up people's hearts to the Samaritans, um, maybe you got one of these, this bookmark-sized piece of paper. This is one of the structures that has helped me to be faithful in representing Jesus. Uh, I've got a list. It's a little more than three people. But I want you to think about three people. For me, a lot of them come from playing basketball, and a lot of them come from being my neighbor in my community. But I write down their name for this first reason. This is the only one I want to share, but to invest in them by praying for them. That as I learn people's names, as I play basketball with them, as I learn their story, I write down their name to remember to pray for them. How can I expect God's going to give me a conversation with them that they'll be here on Sunday morning, that they'll visit my community group if I'm not praying for them first and foremost? And so what I want to do is I want want you to think about this. Are there three people that God wants you to invest in that might be far from Jesus right now? And maybe they're Samaritans, maybe... (laughs) Maybe they're fellow Jerusalemites. It could be either. But I want you to think. I encourage you to write down their name. And and I believe that we must pray for them. We must. We can't overlook that. It's a structure that I use in my life. And I believe it has helped me to authentically love people. This has helped uh, my, my terrible memory. <laughs> my mind's like a, like a sieve, right? Things are leaving it all the time. But I, I want to remember these people to high value. And so I want to encourage you before today, before today ends, to write down those names right there, the I3 list. I believe that God's spirit can empower you to represent his gospel boldly, and that this might help us to be focused and intentional. Lastly, they shared the message truly, and God truly changed hearts. Me, if I were walking into a spiritually hostile place like Samaria, and you had influencers like Simon the magician, I'd be afraid. That would be my first instinct. In fact, this brings up many thoughts about the occult today. Spiritual dominions, spiritual strongholds, evil that we cannot see, evil that cannot be measured with our science. And I feel intimidated. 
And yet what we need to see right here is that Philip and Peter and John are unafraid of the occult that is represented in Simon the Magician. And I think that should fuel what we should think about the occult today. As Americans, we might be tempted to dismiss spiritual evil powers. Don't. And as Christians that believe the Bible and read amazing things within it and have maybe had experiences, we could be tempted towards cowardice with the occult, towards evil powers. You and I, because of the power of Jesus and his cross, do not need to be afraid. His cross, his words are stronger in this story. They are stronger in the apostle's life, in Philip's life, even stronger in the baby Christian Samaritan's life against Simon the magician. I want to encourage you to not ignore or to believe that there's no evil power in our world. But I definitely don't want you to be afraid of the occult as well. They shared the message and God's power changed hearts, truly. You and I don't have to be afraid. We can share the gospel boldly. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you have empowered us to go show and tell the gospel boldly. And as we read about Simon the magician who, who responds to your gospel and then, and then seems to misunderstand that you and I would not be afraid of the spiritual powers that we might encounter. But Lord, that you would teach and create in us a desire to be faithful. God, thank you that your gospel included people that we might have, we might have counted out. And God, I pray right now that you would help us to be faithful, whether, whether that's using an I3 list or whether that is remembering every day the people that we need to pray for that you've put in our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to be focused. I pray that you would help us to have great expectations like Philip and like John and Peter of what your spirit is doing. God, I pray in 2023, not just for our church, but for the community around our church, the number of people that will come into your kingdom by grace through faith in Jesus because of the witness of your churches all over this area. God, make us faithful and please keep us focused. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.